You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Lord, we continue to come to you this morning seeking you in spirit and in truth. And we are so grateful that we don't look for you in a place but that we have found you in the person of Jesus Christ. You have come for each one of us to pursue us with your love, to pursue us with your power and your presence. We thank you that you've already been at work in our hearts and our lives through your spirit. And now as we open your word together, we pray that you will do just that. And thank you that wherever we are in a living room, in a car, however we're watching or listening to this, you are there with us. And you want us to see you. You want us to hear you. You want us to experience you. So through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to do exactly that here this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Thank you for production team. We have such a great crew here. Um, They motored in very early this morning because we didn't get to have rehearsals the last couple days with snow and what have you with the weather. And so they've worked very hard this morning for us to be able to bring this service to you. And I'm grateful for each one of them. So thank you, production team and worship team. So that being said... um, I know that there are probably a number of you who are disappointed that we can't be together in person this morning. And I I get that. We certainly understand that. But at the same time, we're never going to compromise on your safety or putting that at risk. There's still a lot of ice and snow in our parking lot here at the building. So we're very grateful that we get to come to you in this way to worship together and to seek seek God together. So as we prepare to, uh, to open God's word here this morning, I was just reminded of a story as I often am when I'm preparing um, messages for us to, to walk through together. And this story takes place many, many, many years ago. In fact, here's a picture of it. I know that's kind of grainy, but this was taken back in the day when cameras weren't on phones. They were actually cameras. And this was off a Polaroid camera, so it's old. This is 1987, just yesterday, right? I was a high school senior, and I know that the uh, the image is kind of grainy there, but that's Jamie and me on the left and some friends of ours there on the right. And what provoked this memory was um, that that friend uh, standing next to me, She her name is Julie, and she's one of Jamie's closest friends. They've literally been lifelong friends since they were little girls. And we're going to get to see them here in a couple weeks, so it made me start thinking about this. But uh, her boyfriend at the time, John, he had won this three-hour limousine ride that we got to have. And so here we are, high school seniors, and we're like, well, what, what do we do? What do you do with a limousine? Where do you go? And we thought, we're just going to go everywhere because our objective is to be seen. So we want to be seen in this limo. So we t- told the limo driver, we don't care where you drive us. We just want to go all over the city because we want to be seen in this limo. And he said, no problem. And this guy was probably a year or two older than we were. He was pretty young. And so he was a lot of fun. And so he took us all over the city and we finally decided, hey, we need to go to the Rose Garden. We're going to go to the zoo. And some of you have heard this story before. And if you have, don't, don't give it away, okay, with those you might be with. I've told this in the distant past. But we, we go up to the, the, the zoo and we go up to Forest Park there and they've got part of it shut down and they're actually turning cars away. And so we queue up in the this long line of, of, of cars. And uh, our driver turns around to us and he says, watch this. And so he, he rolls up the window and as we get closer to the checkpoint, 
Um, he turns on the intercom so we can hear what's going to be said, and he rolls down the window, and the, the security guy says, hey, you know, we can't let you go through here. You can't go in this part of the, the Rose Garden and, and uh, Forest Park. And he says, well, you, you don't understand. He said, I've got some really important clients in the back, and they have to get through. And they argued a little bit, and the limo driver, he just put his foot down and said, look, th these people have to get through. I've got to get to where we're going. And the guy said, well, okay. So he opens the gate, and we get to go through. And we look back in the back window, and here's all these people kind of glaring at us and shaking their fists. We get to go through, and they don't. And he rolls down the window, this young driver of ours, and I've never forgotten what he said or how he said it, but he rolls down the window, and he said, look, you guys always have to remember, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know me, I'm getting you through. So we come to this passage once again where Jesus is talking about eternal life. Life now and life forever is about knowing him. It's not necessarily about what you know. Life in Jesus Christ is about who you know. It's about knowing him. And we've looked at this as we've gone through these, these chapters here in John because he keeps returning to this theme. And I know some of you are saying, hey, we've seen this part of the movie before. But here he is talking about in this very passage we're going to look at today again about knowing him. And we have to understand there's an incredibly important difference between knowing about something or someone and knowing them. The type of knowing that the Bible's talking about here, that Jesus himself is talking about here, is the type of knowing that happens at the highest level of relationship, the deepest level of relationship and intimacy between two persons. In fact, this word for knowing is used to describe the intimacy between a husband and a wife. I know Jamie in ways that you never will, and you better not know her the way I know her. But that's the type of intimacy this is, this is talking about here. That's how deeply God wants us to know him and how deeply he, he knows us. And he keeps coming back to this because it's so very important. And today, and you've heard it in some of the songs that we just sang together, you'll hear this theme, this reality really, of streams or rivers of living water. So what does that have to do with, with knowing God? Well, that's exactly where this passage is going to go today, but there's some primers I want to give you as we prepare to enter into this. Remember that this is taking place in one of the pilgrimage feasts. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. We're in chapter 7 today. We're actually going to live in proximity to this festival, this feast, for several weeks. The time frame of the Feast of Booths was in the fall. It celebrated the autumn harvest of the tree and the vine, but it also remembered God's gift of provisions to the people when they were wandering those 40 years in the desert. It remembered how he gave them manna and how he gave them water and how he took care of them. But it also was timed very deliberately for when it happened. You see, it happened in the fall and in the ancient Near East, especially in that region of the fall, fall was a time when it was hot and it was dry, it was parched. Springs and cisterns had either run out or they were extremely low. And so there was this expectation, this hope that the rains would come. And that was very much a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, was this reality of water brings life and we need water every day. And so through the centuries, a ritual developed. It's not prescribed in the Old Testament of the Bible, but the people began to 
adopt it and do it every year. And that was, there was this procession of priests who would go to the pool of Siloam and they would take a pitcher and they'd fill this pitcher with water and then they would walk and wind and make their way through the city singing songs of praise to God and they would come to the altar at the temple and at the base of the altar they would pour out this water. And for seven days, they did this over and over again to remind themselves, to remind the people of the necessity of water. Water for physical life, but water for spiritual life. And on the very last day of the festival, the eighth day, they would disassemble the booths that they had been living in. They would, they would sing songs of praise once again. It would be treated in many ways like a Sabbath. Work would be minimal and limited. But the water pitcher would be empty to symbolize and remember the reality that they needed water but also to look forward to the expectation of the spiritual refreshment, the spiritual water that would come when the Messiah one day would appear on the scene, when God's chosen one, promised one, would come. He would bring living water. And now we have a much better filter by which to read this chapter by because Jesus very deliberately is going to exploit and take advantage of all this imagery because he's the fulfillment of it. And so as we saw last week, the people were in all different places trying to figure out the identity of who Jesus is. Is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? Is he just lying to everybody? Is he demon possessed? Or is he truly who he says he is? And you're going to see the people in the story once again wrestling with this reality and this very necessary reality that you and I need to settle and wrestle with for ourselves. The most important question you will ever ask and answer in your life. Who is Jesus? But as we dive into this passage, one last thing, and then I promise we'll get there. You have got to look at the irony that is all throughout this passage. And just so we're on the same page, irony defined is the use of words to convey a meaning that is the opposite of its literal meaning. As I read this passage to you, you watch for as people are trying to figure out who Jesus is and what his identity is. Look at the ironies that keep coming up over and over again. So here we go. This is, in the, this is at the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, as Jesus has appeared on the scene and begun teaching at the festival, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is, speaking publicly. And they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, where the Messiah comes from, no one will know. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I'm from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. So then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? 
Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke this way, the, man, this, the way this man does, the cards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law not condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now we're just going to surface some of what's going on in this passage, but look at this. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Because at this point, they're not saying anything. And here's one of the first of, of many ironies. The answer to that question is no. But the crowds are hesitating. You'll notice they were whispering. They're not being overt in what they think about Jesus because they're afraid of the authorities. And the authorities are hesitating to do anything about Jesus because they're afraid of the crowd. They're both afraid of each other. But in speaking to the authorities, look who decides that they need to band together to do this. The chief priests and the Pharisees. Now they're two very different sects being represented here. Two different groups of leadership. They were part of what was known as the Sanhedrin. And it was combined of both of them, but they could not be any more different. The Pharisees believed in the written law, the oral law, so they believed in the entire Old Testament and the oral tradition of the elders, but the Sadducees didn't. They only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, those that were written by Moses. The Pharisees believed in free will and determination, but the Sadducees only believed in free will. The Pharisees did believe in the existence of angels and demons. The Sadducees didn't. In fact, they didn't believe in the afterlife at all. There was no resurrection, and the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife and a resurrection. Could two groups of religious leaders be further apart? Do you know what you call a meeting of these kinds of groups together? A train wreck. How do they ever agree on anything? I mean, if you want some entertainment, get some popcorn, show up in the back and watch the fireworks when they begin to try to figure things out. You know, in our day and age, in our culture, probably the closest thing that we can have as a frame of reference for this is our current political leadership. Can you imagine the most extreme elements of both parties getting together and trying to figure things out? Yeah, we see that all the time. It doesn't work very well. 
That often happened with this group. We'll see it play out in the gospel. If you read further on in the New Testament to the book of Acts, you'll see it play out there as, as well. But ironically, these bitter rivals are now becoming desperate allies because they have to shut Jesus down, but they're just not sure how to do it. And so we see some of the wrestling that's going on with the crowd with Jesus' identity. And I don't know where they came up with this, but some of them said, hey, we know where this man is from, but when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Really? Do you know one of the most compelling things about Jesus is that he fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah? It's one of those most compelling arguments for him really being who he said he was, was he fulfilled all the prophecies. And one of those very distinct, specific prophecies was that the Messiah would come from the line of David from Bethlehem. So how in the world could they say no one knows where the Messiah is going to come from? But you look at others in the crowd and they're saying, we've made up our minds he is the Messiah. Still others are saying, how can he come from Galilee? Doesn't the Messiah say, and then they repeat what I just told you, that he has to come from one of David's descendants from Bethlehem. And again, ironically, Jesus lived in Nazareth, but where was he born? Bethlehem. Who had he descended from? David. So, so many of them are, are missing it. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees, they've had enough. They send the guards to arrest Jesus. And the guards have one job. One job. Excuse me. Yeah, the guards. One job. They work for the Pharisees. And they go to Jesus and come back because Jesus has gone to work on them. In fact, they don't even take the easy out of blaming the crowd and being afraid of the crowd. And that's why they didn't arrest him. They say no one has ever spoke the way this man does. What about this? The Pharisees at this point are getting really upset and they say, none of us have believed in him. And this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Now, really? Okay, let's do some business with that. The people are there gathered in Jerusalem because they're following the law. They've made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They're there because they are observing the law. And by the way, they're a mob. Who is spiritually responsible to be teaching them and discipling them and growing them and leading them? It's the Pharisees. That would be analogous to the elders standing up here and addressing us as a community and saying, you're all just a bunch of mob who know nothing about the Bible and nothing about Jesus. Well, really? So... That in itself is ironic, but then they say none of us are following him. What about Nicodemus? Now in the arc of Nicodemus' spiritual journey, we don't know where he's at yet. But we're pretty sure he becomes a Jesus follower because if you fast forward in the Gospel of John, you see that he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to ask for Jesus' body once Jesus had died. Puts his life, his reputation at great risk in order to do so. Many scholars believe, and I think they're right, at this point, Nicodemus was a Jesus follower. We're not sure, though, at this point in the passage, but he's doing business with it. And he necessarily points out, you're breaking the law yourselves. Because Deuteronomy chapter 1 says that you are not supposed to leverage or go to judgment or give a judgment until you've heard everybody out in a dispute. And they're already jumping to these outrageous conclusions. And, and they're so angry they want to kill Jesus. They themselves are breaking the law, ironically. And then the cherry on top here, they declare 
that uh, a prophet will never come out of Galilee. Really? What about Elijah and Nahum and um, other prophets that possibly came out of Galilee as well? We know that those, that those came out of Galilee. Jonah came out of Galilee. And can't God, because he's God, bring a prophet from wherever he wants? So this was factually wrong. But they're so upset and so angry. They're seeing red. And this is what they say. You ever done that? You ever said something that just wasn't true because you were just angry and frustrated? Well, that's what's going on here. Okay, so let's begin to put all this together. Where are, we, where are we going with this? What's this whole thing about rivers of living water all about? Well, it starts again with knowing him versus knowing about him. And this is super important, and please understand this. Please receive this. Information does not necessarily mean transformation. Meaning, is it possible to go to church, watch like you're doing now, or listen like you're doing now? Is it possible to know the Bible, to give money? Man, to be a good person, to be involved in serving and doing all these things in the life of the church and to not know Jesus? And the answer is yes. Do you know Jesus? Not just know about him, but has there been a defining moment, a defining season in your life where you've received him into your life as your Lord and Savior, invited him to come into your life because you want to know him the way he knows, he knows you? I mean, one of the ironies that we saw all throughout those verses that we just read is that the people who knew the most scripture, who were the most religious, were actually most of the ones who missed him. The least likely people you would ever expect to follow Jesus actually end up following Jesus because believing is not about what you know. It is about who you know. So do you. Do you know Jesus? Not just know about him. Well, how do you answer that? I mean, how do you know when you know, right? Well, has he gotten personal with you? Has the truth about who he is gotten personal with you? So, Jamie and I recently had a defining moment conversation together. For many, many years, I have been pre-diabetic. In fact, I've, I've been in a, a, a blood sugar study that lasted like four years through Kaiser, who is our medical provider. And I was in this four-year clinical study because um, I was invited into it because a number of folks who, well, actually all the folks who were in this study were pre-diabetic, but I didn't fit the algorithm. It, there's no history of this in my genetics, and I exercise by running, unfortunately, but I do. You know how much I love running, but I exercise pretty consistently, and I don't have any of the risk factors for being pre-diabetic or even eventually diabetic someday, and yet here I am. And I've taken these tests over the years that have revealed my blood sugar, and you know, I know it's been too high, and I know, the, know I need to work on it, but most recently I, I had another blood sugar study done, um, another test done a couple months ago, and this time it was highest that it's ever been. And, and if that wasn't enough, 
my wife, Jamie, she is a diabetes prevention coach with the Providence Health System. I mean, this is her expertise. This is, this is what she does with people all the time. And I, I love my wife. She's never manipulated me about this or forced a conversation I didn't want to have. But we were having a very necessary conversation that I initiated about this. And she began to help me understand that this is something I have to own. It has always been, oh yeah, my blood sugar is a little too high. Someday I'll do something about that. But this time the truth got personal with me because I realized I am headed towards diabetes. And I actually have some control over that, at least at this point in my life. Do I really want to head that head down that route? And there are so many of you I've talked to through the years. You're a type 1 diabetic, a type 2 diabetic. You, you, it hasn't been a choice for you. I mean, it's, you have to deal with this. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. But I'm at the point in my physical journey where I actually can do something about this still. And that's all of a sudden become very personal with me. It's more than just information. This, this is about my life and my health. And am I going to do something about it? The truth of this reality got personal with me. How do you know when you know God? When you know Jesus Christ, not just know about him? It's when he's gotten personal with you. And remember what we looked at last week. If you want him to get personal with you, if you invite him to do so, he will. What did he say last week? Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And here's some more irony for you. Do you know, do you and I appreciate what the starting point of belief actually is? It's admitting that you don't. The starting point for faith or for belief is to honestly, authentically own that you don't believe. And then in that journey, you invite himself to reveal himself to you, to show himself to you. And if he does, then you have to respond. When he gets personal with you, you need to actually respond. And there's a defining moment, a defining season for all of us who know Jesus Christ, who he's gotten personal with, where we've responded to him. You've got to respond at some point. And if you do, look at the promise that he gives us in this very passage. He says, streams or rivers of living water will flow out of you. And again, when he proclaimed this, it was the last day of the festival. There was no water being poured in the ritual to emphasize that we're all thirsty. The land is thirsty. People are thirsty, but we're also spiritually thirsty. And rivers of living water here means life through the Holy Spirit. Water has always been symbolic of life in Scripture, but also symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, all talk about and compare the Holy Spirit to living Water, And this isn't the first time we've heard this. For those of you who have been in our John series, remember Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well? What does he tell her? Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal 
life. And then he proceeds to tell her, if you'll remember, that God is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. You don't have to worship God in a specific place. You worship God through the person of Jesus Christ by inviting him into your life and then responding to him. So really, bottom line, what this is talking about is this is about finding life in him and through him. That's what rivers of living water is all about. So let's test drive that. When is the last time you have really felt alive? Or to put it another way, when's the last time you've said to yourself, this is really living? Now, wouldn't it be great if you and I could capture those moments and just put them in a bottle and put them on a shelf? And when we wanted to experience that, we could just take the lid off the jar and dump it out. And you know, now we're, now we're really living life the way it was intended to be. Why are we like that? Why do we, why do we seek life? I know we're getting a little philosophical here, but just go there for a minute with me. What, what is this all emphasizing? What is Jesus helping us come face to face with, which is true for every single one of us? Man, it's that we're thirsty. We are thirsty people. And it really begs the question, where are we finding life? Where are you looking for life today? You know, this was vividly illustrated to me when I went on a missions trip many years ago to Bolivia. And again, this is why unapologetically in your stay with our community, your longevity in our community. If you're here at Grace in this community for any length of time, our hope, our prayer is that you will go on a short-term missions trip somehow, somewhere, some way. Because God will speak into your life in ways that are incredibly powerful. Every short-term missions trip, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, that I've ever been a part of, has been a defining moment for me. It has literally changed my life. And this trip to Bolivia changed my life forever. I've never been the same. And this is why. Bolivia is the poorest country in Latin America. You are rich in that country if you have sanitation and you have clean drinking water and maybe some access, even if it's intermittently, to electricity. I mean, it's, it, it is poverty. And I'll never forget interacting with this people, doing life with these people for almost two weeks. And they had this joy and this hope and this purpose that was irresistible. And they had nothing. They didn't have the money I have, the stuff I have, even the health that you and I have. And yet they had this joy and this hope and this purpose because they knew the source of life. Because they knew Jesus. And again, we have to remember that this life Jesus promises us doesn't mean a life without trouble. Life is not the absence of trouble. It is the presence and power of Jesus in our life, regardless of what's happening in our life. Some of you, you're in trouble this morning. You've got relationships that are hurting. You've got a marriage that's struggling. You've got a job that you just lost. You have health issues that you never dreamed you would be going toe-to-toe with, and here you are. Or you've, you've lost someone, and we could just continue on down the list. But Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. 
But the best part is what follows that. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You can still have and find life, even in the middle of a storm, even in the middle of trouble. And one of the most meaningful, deepest ways we experience that is we trust him to satisfy our deepest thirsts. You know, when I first started following Jesus many, many years ago, I thought, you know, this life that he promises us, that's eternal life. Man, that's great. Someday I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to really experience life the way God intended it. And that's very true. But that promise for life is also for life now. Even in the face of trouble. Even in the face of difficulty. But unfortunately in our thirst, we don't necessarily believe that. And so we look to other things to quench our thirst. Where are you looking to quench your thirst? Because there's a thirst that can only be satisfied through knowing and receiving Jesus in your life, through knowing him, through experiencing the living water that he promises to give you and me. But we don't always believe that. Even those of us who know better. Even those of us who know him. And so we look to quench our thirst in so many other ways. And I was reminded of this with, with our dogs. You know, I know this is a little disturbing. Gary Brashears talks about grandkids and I talk about dogs. I don't know what to tell you. But these are our two dogs. This is Jonah on the left, Jersey on the right. And not just true of them, but true of every other pet we've ever owned who's been a dog, and we've had many, is when they have a choice between clean water and muddy water, what will they go to? They will go to the mud puddle every time. They will drink from the mud puddle every time. And we're not dissimilar from them. Or to put it another way, I do that more than I would like to admit in my own life. And I bet you do too. Instead of looking for life from Jesus, from the promises he gives me, from the things he says he will provide for me, Instead of finding life by trusting in him, I trust in me. And so I choose to satisfy my thirst for him in other ways. I choose to drink from the mud puddle instead of drinking from the clean living water that he promises me. I saw a study that just came out this week that said there is an alarming trend that's beginning to take place in our culture and especially in the lives of, of young men that among 20-something men, 60% of them right now are single. And again, let me put this against a backdrop of, of something. This is not to say that there's anything wrong with being single. There's not. In fact, let's frame that the way Scripture does. Marriage and singleness are equally valued, equally important. Marrying someone does not complete you. Jesus is the only one who completes you. So this isn't a statement about whether it's right or wrong to be single or married. It's not about that. But what's alarming is that not just that 60% of young men who are 20-somethings in our culture are single. It's that they are filling, many of them, their thirst for relationship by drinking from the mud puddle. And one of those mud puddles is pornography. 
And this study found that a number of young men aren't choosing to bother with a relationship, to commit to a relationship, to be involved in any kind of romantic relationship because they're having their thirst for intimacy filled through their pornography. Then again, this isn't true of all single men and single young men, but it's just emphasizing and illustrating that we are thirsty people, all of us, and sometimes we're settling for water from the mud puddle instead of the living water that Jesus promises us. And really what we're talking about here is living through, living out the power of the Holy Spirit. Now when this passage was, was written, the Spirit hadn't been given yet. I mean, when Jesus said these things, rather. When Jesus said, the Spirit had, or rather John, I guess, as he was giving us this commentary on what Jesus said and what was going on in this chapter. When John said this, the Spirit hadn't been given yet. But he has now. The Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And the Spirit is not Casper the Friendly Ghost, and it's not an it. It's, he's God. He's the person of God. And again, Christianity, as I understand it, is the only belief system, the only worldview that teaches that God wants such intimacy with you and me, that he wants us to know him so intimately that he literally comes and lives inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He literally lives, lives within us. And he never leaves us. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God in your life. The power and presence of God in your life. Do you believe that? Do you live that? Do I? Because the reality is there are times that we can minimize the Holy Spirit. We can ignore the Holy Spirit. We can do what the Bible calls quenching the Holy Spirit. And that is resisting His power and His work in our lives. And we miss out on the very life that God wants to give us when we do those things. And sometimes, when we were talking about this in preaching team earlier this week, sometimes it's so difficult to separate out what is the power and movement and influence and work of the Holy Spirit and what is our feelings. Oftentimes they work together, but not always. I mean, sometimes the two are very closely related, but, but many times they're not. So how do you know when the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Well, by way of example, last week when I told you about my call to be a pastor, what I didn't tell you about was that was actually a multi-year process that culminated in me sitting on that bus and the Holy Spirit very clearly telling me, I want you to become a pastor. I left out the part about reading years of, of scripture about God wanting to use my gifts and a number of conversations I'd had with disciples, with mentors who were investing into me and talking about that possibility and even talking about that possibility with the very executive pastor who came down and recruited me to step into to ministry a couple weeks after that experience. That was all the work of the Holy Spirit. So how do you discern and understand and recognize and respond to the Holy Spirit? Some of it, quite honestly, is familiarity. It comes from walking with the Lord, reading His Word, praying to Him, learning to recognize His movement in your life. It comes from being in community. It comes from the very thing we're doing right here. And what we do the rest of the week in small groups or meeting one-on-one -on -one or what have you, it comes from help, have, having the input of others. Because the reality is, if you want to know the God of the Word, you need to know the Word of God. 
and we always filter what seems to be a leading or prompting from the Holy Spirit through the word. But if you don't know the word, you don't have the ability to do that. So once again, the importance of being in and marinating and listening to and responding to the word of God. So how do you know when the Holy Spirit is changing your life? How do you know when streams of living water are actually flowing out of you? Rivers of living water. Well, are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you more loving than you were a year ago? Are you more giving than you were last month? Are you more forgiving than you used to be? Are you more hopeful? Are you more helpful? In many ways, you know that he's at work in your life when life is no longer always about you. When instead of being first, you're willing to be last. When instead of demanding others serve you, you're willing to serve others. When instead of being so concerned about what can I get, how much can I get, rather looking to give. I know, I know these are so incredibly difficult things to quantify. Am I more loving than I was a year ago? Am I more giving than I was yesterday? Am I willing to be last when I could be first? But, but those are litmus tests of the heart. Those are ways of beginning to see if we're becoming more like Jesus. And again, the reality is your strongest desire in the moment may not be to trust and obey God. But if you know God, your deepest desire is because you've been given a new heart. And so, you and I can do this. And why wouldn't we? Because God promises us life and blessing and hope and purpose and joy. So instead of drinking from mud puddles, we can choose life by listening to and responding to His, His Holy Spirit. One last story here, and I'll invite the preaching, excuse me, the worship team. You've heard enough from the preaching team, the worship team, to come up as we respond to this. So our David Piper, our pastor of evangelism, and once again, congratulations, Piper and Lauren, on a little sail of grace. That's so awesome. But these last couple of weeks, he challenged us to pray for opportunities to just mention the name of Jesus or, or pray with someone in the name of Jesus. And sometimes that's, that's really difficult to do because, you know, we're not looking for that opportunity or quite honestly, many of us are probably fearful of what do I say? How would I say it? And yet we're also told though in the book of Peter in the New Testament to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. So if we have hope, we have something to give away and something to share, right? And so on, this was on Tuesday. So no, yeah, two weeks ago, Tuesday, had to think a minute, pre-snow, two weeks ago, Tuesday morning, we talk about this as a staff. And so with the rest of the staff team, I pray, God, just give me an opportunity to do that. So a couple days later, I have one of my um, early morning Bible studies. And according to work schedules, we have to meet pretty early or at least early by my standards. It's at 5.15, not p.m., a.m., 5.15 a.m. in the morning at a local coffee shop here. And I got there a little early this morning because I wanted to get some things ready. 
and there's no one there, just the barista who's opening the shop. And I see someone walk across the back of the drive-through there and around the back of the cafe, and I didn't really think anything of it. So I walk in, and again, it's just me and the barista, and she's on the phone, and she's talking to a, a guy outside the drive-through window, and I can overhear the conversation. I'm not trying to, but again, there's no one in there. So sound is carrying, and, and it turns out that this guy is having an emergency. It seems like he may be having a heart attack, and so she's on the phone with 911 and she's telling him to come around and come around to get warm and come in the come in the, the the cafe and so he does and it turns out he's a homeless guy he's got his sleeping bag over his shoulder and he looks horrible I mean he's ashen and he's gray and he's trembling and I help him get over to the bench and just begin to talk to him and and he's really upset because he's not just having a heart attack and he said you know I've had two of these and this is you know I'm, I'm I'm numb here and my hands are going numb and I've got this pain in his chest some classic symptoms of a heart attack but what's most upsetting to him actually isn't that what's upsetting to him is that he tried to go to a, a, another place another convenience store to get help then they ran him off and said we don't care we don't care what's going on with you get out of here I'm not going to help you and he was understandably really upset about this and so I said, man, can I, I I'm so sorry. And that's not going to happen here. We're going to help you. And so 911 was called and I said, can I just, can I pray for you in the name of Jesus? And he stopped and paused and kind of looked at me, kind of sizing me up and said, okay. And so I prayed that God would, would preserve his life, would save his life. And that somehow through this, he would come to know how much God loves him and that Jesus is pursuing him and that Jesus wants him to know him. And so I prayed this prayer for him. The, the paramedics arrive and, and they hook him up to all these monitors and sure enough, he's not in good shape and so they, they ambulance him away. And honestly, I don't know that I would have done that some weeks ago. I mean, I, I hope I would have. But I was looking for the opportunity to, to love someone and to pray for them in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was because, in part, I was responding to the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit made it really clear, you need to pray for him right now, and, and so I did. We serve a God who wants all people to come and know him. Not just know about him, but know him. And to experience true life as a result. To experience streams of, of living water flowing from them as they enrich and bless and love other people the way they have been enriched and blessed and loved. And so as we sing this song about the Father's love, as you sing this, or maybe even as you think about the words, would you remember what, what God has done for you? How has he loved you? How has he blessed you? How has he given life to you? Savor that. Remember that. Because that's what motivates us to give and love and serve others. Lord, thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we don't just know about you. We know you. That you are the one true God. And you want us to have joy and hope and purpose even in the eye of a storm, even when we're in trouble and in difficulty. We can still find and experience life through you. So Lord, help us to remember that, to believe that and to respond to that. And would you remind us of that now as we sing this song together about your amazing love. And we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy is our God. Holy 
is the Lord. On the last and, great, last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Are you thirsty? Of course you are. We all are. And there's a thirst that you have that can only be quenched through Jesus Christ and knowing him as your Lord and Savior. So how will you quench your thirst today? Not only is that a one-time thing of receiving Jesus into your life, it's an ongoing thing of responding to his Holy Spirit, choosing to quench your thirst with the life and satisfaction that only he can provide. So I'd like to pray God's blessing over you. Lord, I pray for everyone who's watching and listening to this, and I ask this for myself as well, that we would quench our thirst in you. Would you forgive us for turning to things and stuff and money and sex and relationships and work and all the other things that we try to quench our thirst with instead of going to you, the source of, of living water. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's watching or listening to this who hasn't made that defining moment decision to know you as their Lord and their God that right now they would ask you to come into their lives. They would literally say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Would you come into my life? And Lord, for those of us who have made that choice, would we remember that choice? Would we choose to respond to your Holy Spirit as you prompt us to love other people the way you have first loved us, to give to other people because you have given to us, to forgive other people because you have forgiven us. And on it goes. Thank you that the life you call us to live, you empower us through your spirit to do so. You give us the ability to do so and you give us the promise of blessing if we do. Lord, thank you for all these realities. Thank you for you. And I pray your richest blessing over each person who's watching and listening to this. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you're new to our church family or if we haven't had the chance to connect with you before on our website, if you'll scroll down on our homepage just a little ways, you'll see a connect button there. We'd love for you to click on that. And anyway, we can also be praying for you. Please let us know that as well. And God willing, Lord willing, and no more snow, we'll look forward to worshiping together in person again this next weekend. God bless you. And don't settle for anything less than living water today and this week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for watching and listening. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.